This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment, the conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. Why is putting out the fire more fascinating than preventing the fire? And why do we think we don't have the money to prevent something, even if the lack of prevention creates a cost double or triple or a hundred times more, or worse, costs lives or quality of lives? We seem to be addicted to response, recovery, and rescue. All that can change to our collective good and in dramatic ways. The best-selling author, we're talking like three million copies of his books, Dan Heath, in his latest, well, I'm going to say that over. The best-selling author, Dan Heath, in his latest book, Upstream, The Quest to Solve Problems Before They Happen, provides the roadmaps, the rationale, and dozens of incredible real examples of how thinking upstream can change anything and everything. Like all his previous books, which were co-authored with his brother Chip, his book Made to Stick, Switch, Decisive, and The Power of Moments, I finished this book and I am, I finished those books and I am always inspired and energized and downstream does it again. Dan, welcome to Just the Right Book. Roxanne, so great to be talking to you again. Uh, so, Dan, I always love your stories behind why, why you do the next book that you do. So what was the story that got you started on Upstream? I remember it. Uh, and this was probably the longest brewing of, of the five books that I've written or co-written. This one dates back to 2009 when I heard a parable that I can tell in 45 seconds. Uh, it, it, it involves you and a friend having a picnic beside a river and you lay out your picnic blanket and you're just about to settle down to eat when you hear a shout from the direction of the river and you swivel your head around and it's a child thrashing around in the water, apparently drowning. And so you and your friend instinctively dive in, you grab the child, you bring them to shore. And no sooner is your adrenaline starting to uh, recede a little bit than you hear a second shout. You look back, it's another child also same situation, apparently drowning. So back in you go, you fish that child out. And no sooner have you gotten to shore, you hear two more shouts. Now it's two kids in the river. And so begins this kind of revolving door of rescue and you're in and you're out and starting to get exhausting. And right about then you see your friend swim to shore, step out and start walking away as if to leave you alone. You say, hey, where are you going? I can't do all this work by myself. And your friend says, I'm going upstream to tackle the guy who's throwing all these kids in the river. <laughs> and I remember I was so struck by that. I heard that at a public health conference. And, and I was so struck by that idea that I started a file called Upstream uh, in Microsoft Word and, and for the next 10 years kept, kept taking notes. But, but I found it so powerful, this idea that there are so many parts of our world, um, not only in our personal lives, but also in our work and even as we're experiencing now in the summer of 2020 in our society as a whole, where we get trapped in a mode of reaction. You know, we, 
respond to emergencies after they happen, but only after they happen. We, we put out fires one after the other, but we never seem to make the time to get upstream and solve these problems at their root. And, and that planted the seed that led to the book uh, 11 years later. So one of the things that's the obvious difference between putting out a fire and preventing a fire is urgency, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the fire's going, you're, you're not going to say, oh, you know what, we don't really have the money or the time to put out that fire. We'll just let that building burn down. So how is it that you create urgency around prevention? Because it seems like it's manana. I don't need to do it now. It'll work itself out. So what are the ways in which you create urgency around prevention? Well, you, you, you put your finger on, on one of the toughest issues of them all, which is that in many ways, to get upstream action mobilized, we have to make things that are by definition not urgent. Anytime we're trying to prevent a problem, it hasn't happened yet. And so there's not an emergency response needed. We have to create urgency where there is none. Um, and yet, you know, right now when we recorded this, we're living through COVID. And this is a very clear example of what the absence of that urgency looks like. Mm. You know, when, when we wait until the emergency happens, the consequences are so much more dire, both in human terms and economic terms. And if we had taken some early action, and, and I think this is a hard one. I think it's one of the hardest ones. This is why for, for 20 years, we've been spinning our wheels on climate change, even though it's the most obvious thing in the world that the consequences are going to be severe. But even so, it's hard to spark action in the moment because there's always something more urgent. There's a natural disaster. There's a, a political fight. There's uh, international conflict of various kinds. And how do you mobilize people? Sorry, hold on, Dan. I'll yeah. just disconnect that. Sure. So sorry, that's the problem with this at home stuff. No, no worries. That happens to me all the time. Um, so, so how do we do it? Well, the, the only thing I can point to is the fact that at various times we have done it. Uh, you know, in the 80s, for instance, uh, we successfully, we meaning, you know, an international effort across countries, mobilizing thousands of people, we addressed the ozone hole problem. Which, which in many ways is analogous to climate change. You know, it's this very abstract problem. I remember hearing one scientist talk about how it was so hard to, to get people excited about this because the problem involves invisible holes in an invisible layer of the atmosphere that sends down invisible rays, you know, that, that may later cause problems like skin cancer or, or droughts in various regions of the world. And yet, despite all those obstacles, the same ones we face now, we were able to create action. We were able to, to start a series of protocols that, that didn't fix the ozone hole, to be clear, but, but at the very least stopped the degradation of it. And thereby, we stopped digging our own grave as a species, which, which is something to be applauded, I would say. So what were the factors that led to getting everybody's attention at that point? I think scientists were at the forefront of this work and, and many of them had to shift their role from being a scientist, you know, a, a seeker of truth to being an advocate, you know, because they realized this was so potentially dire 
that they couldn't just store information in journals, that they were compelled to actually go out and kind of shake people by the collar and say, hey, we've got to act. And I think it took them years to get better and better at, at making the harms of this vivid. I'll give you a couple of examples. They sound small, but just indicative of the kind of work they were doing. First, they had to find advocates and, and employ their energies however they could. So uh, just as one example among many, there was an episode of All in the Family, which at that time was the number one TV show in America with ratings far in excess of what any TV show gets these days. And, and one of the, the scenes in the show was um, Gloria, the daughter in the show, was using um, spray deodorant, which uh, spray deodorant was propelled by CFCs, which of course are the villain of the ozone hole story. It's CFCs that degrade the ozone layer. And Meathead says, oh, you got to stop using that stuff. You're, you're going to destroy the world. And, and just that episode alone created a noticeable dip in the sales of CFC uh, products or CFC uh, products that included CFCs. So one lesson from that is, is we have to find allies wherever we can, and we have to use their talents in some way that serves the broader mission. The second thing I would say is we need a way to talk concretely about the issues we're facing. Mm. So, so the notion of there being a degradation in the, in the ozone layer explaining all of the science behind that and the CFCs. I mean, it was simply too much to expect a retail citizen of earth to comprehend and get excited about. But, but even simple reframings of the issue, for instance, in the 80s, all of a sudden people started talking about the ozone hole, the hole in the ozone layer. That was new language. That was not around when people first started to get uh, agitated about this issue. And just that framing alone, I think, really helped to, to spark interest because we understand holes. We understand that, that holes demand solutions, right? If there's a hole in a boat, you do something. If there's a hole in your sweater, you do something. If there's a hole in your roof, you do something. And so being able to talk in that language that, that everyday people could relate to and understand, that was also, I think, a big accelerant of this work. You know, Dan, in reading the stories um, in, in the book, uh, there were a couple that reminded me that even wildly complicated, seemingly insurmountable problems can get solved by this thinking. And one of the most inspiring uh, was the instance of homelessness in Rockford, Illinois. So there, it's obvious that there was a problem. Um, you know, people... <laughs> are, are seeing the problem every day. Talk about what they did in Rockford to think upstream, because I think that example has the sort of tent poles that, that help us understand how we can apply this. Yes, absolutely right. I, I think this is one of the, the most kind of diagnostic stories in the book. And this story goes back to 2014, the mayor of Rockford, which by the way, Rockford is the second biggest city in Illinois behind Chicago. Uh, the mayor was Larry Morrissey. He was in his ninth year. And he had, when he first took over as mayor, he had this 10-year plan to end homelessness. And he said uh, he'd gotten nowhere. If anything, he might have lost a little bit of ground after nine years. And so his colleagues come to him. They're excited about this, this new network, this new approach to homelessness that's built around an organization called Built for Zero. 
that's trying to get cities to, uh, to eliminate the problem of homelessness. And they come to the mayor and say, hey, we're, we're excited to be part of this. And he, he admits he was a bit cynical, right? He's just seen nine years of zero progress. But reluctantly, he agrees to sign on to this new campaign, try some new things. Within nine months, Rockford had become the first city in the U.S. to eliminate veteran and chronic homelessness. Now, that seems impossible. It does. And, and so the obvious question is, what did they do in nine months that they couldn't do in nine years? <laughs> and, and I would point to, to, to three things. Um, the first is, was a change in strategy, which was to say, in the old days, the way people approached homelessness was homeless people have a, have a variety of problems. And, and what we've got to do is solve all those problems before we get them into housing. So if they got substance abuse problems, we deal with that. If we've got mental health problems, we deal with that. If they need job training, we deal with that. And then someday if they can kind of earn their way back into housing. And what they did in Rockford and in other cities was they flipped that to what they call a housing first model, which is, which is very commonsensical. And that's to say the presenting problem of someone who is homeless is that they are a person who lacks a home, right? So why don't we get them in a home first? And then, uh, yes, of course they have problems. All of us have problems, but let's get them housed first. Let's get them off the street, make them less vulnerable, and then we can attend to the other issues in their lives. So that was point one. The second point was they began for the first time to bring together all of the constituents in the community that had some stake in the, the problem of homelessness. Because keep in mind, in, in any city, there's going to be a, a half dozen or a dozen different people who have really important aspects of this problem under their control. You've got the social service agencies, you've got the homeless shelters, you've got the VA, you've got the police, you've got the health systems, you've got the fire department. But none of them actually own the issue of homelessness. They just respond to various aspects of it. So in Rockford, they bring all these people together to do what I call surrounding the problem. That was part two, which was part and parcel of part three, which was it changed the nature of what they did when they came together. And what I mean is in Rockford, they started keeping a real time census of every homeless person in the community. Before, they would take a tally once a year, which is what the federal government requires. So they'd go around and count heads, you know, some night at 3 a.m. in February, and that was the only data they gathered for the year. They completely abandoned that, and they said, if we're going to do something about this, we have to know every person who's on the street. I and mean, by name. they names, right? They were saying, we're solving Larry's problem. Exactly, yes. And so a couple of the women that were, that were just the, the leaders of this, Jennifer Jager and Angie Walker, I mean, they were critical in this. And so they're literally, you know, regularly walking the streets, checking under the bridges, checking in with shelters, figuring out who knows what. And they compile, I mean, it's a Google Doc, for goodness sakes. I looked over their shoulder when I was in Rockford. And, you know, the first line of the Google Doc is Larry. And then the second uh, line is Michael. And the third line is Walter. And, and they've got updates on what their situation is. Do they have health problems? And wh where were they last seen? And, and uh, are they amenable to getting into housing? And so when these groups that I was talking about surrounding the problem, when they would get together, what they would be talking about is not, quote unquote, the issue of homelessness, which brings out you know, the pontificating instinct in all of us. It was much more granular. It was about, hey, how do we get Walter? who's living in a tent under the bridge, how do we get him into a house, uh, his own home within 30 days? 
And that proved to be the engine that allowed them to make quick progress because it kind of got all the BS out of the room, right? And it, it brought it alive. It meant it was something that everybody cared about to get one of their fellow citizens off the streets. And so person by person by person, they become this, this astonishing uh, you know, star uh, among cities nationwide. They become the first city to, to basically zero out homelessness among veterans and among the chronically homeless. Just an incredible story. So, Dan, when I, when I read that, I've done nonprofit work for, you know, 50 years. You sit in rooms and people are trying to solve problems. And I've attended um, conferences on how do you scale initiatives that are working. So there's Rockford curing what feels like an intractable problem. What is it that, that should be happening or maybe is happening? Why isn't that being replicated all over the country in cities that are dealing with homelessness? Was there something unique about Rockford? Is there, is there yet another obstacle to replicating this in other places? No, actually. I mean, I mean, two things on this. One is it is being replicated and that, that movement built for zero I was talking about. I haven't checked recently to see the number of cities uh, that have hit this milestone, but, but there are many cities now that have, that have hit what they call the functional zero mark of eliminating the problem of homelessness. I mean, dozens uh, all across the country. So it is working. Uh, you know, the, the exceptions are prominent ones, places like L.A., and I think one of the reasons why it, it, it is so uh, daunting to change LA is because the by name list, you know, becomes kind of fruitless. When you've got thousands of names yeah. on the list instead of hundreds, you kind of lose your ability to get traction and get granular and get personal. And, and I think that may actually, th this is something that, that I've thought about, but didn't feel confident enough in to, to write in the book. But, but I wonder if that might be an ingredient for success that, um, that maybe you need to scale down a problem to a certain size before it yields to this kind of treatment. In other words, rather than treat the problem as being an LA problem, you know, could you divide it up into regions or neighborhoods that would or then allow you? people. Exactly, <laughs> right. Because I, I believe in the methodology they used in Rockford, and I also believe it would be hard for LA to adopt it, but I don't think the lesson there is, well, it won't work for LA. I think it could work for LA if you, if you carved up responsibility in the right way. Well, and you do talk in the book in, in a several places about the way to solve a macro problem is to become micro. That mm. you, it, you know, I love the Expedia story that you open uh, the book with. Share that one with us because I think those of us that are in business were like chagrined because we'd be, we'd be victim to the same thing all the time. Absolutely. And anybody that's, that's part of a business or running a business, I promise you, you're going to laugh at this Expedia story, but, but I think there's some comparable thing happening in your exactly. right now. <laughs> I almost right. promise you. So the Expedia story goes back to 2012. A guy named Ryan O'Neill is in the customer experience group, and he's digging through some data, and he comes across this stat that he just can't believe at first, and he checks it a couple of times because it just it makes his jaw drop. And the stat was for every hundred people who booked a reservation on Expedia, you know, a rental car, a hotel, a flight, whatever, 
58 of the 100 ended up calling the call center for support on their reservation, which would seem to kind of nullify the whole point of having an online website. <laughs> online reservation. Your own travel, right? And so he's like, what in the world's going on here? And he drags in a couple of colleagues to help figure out eventually that the number one reason people are calling is to get a copy of their itinerary. That's number one. I mean, of all the simple things, you kind of slap your forehead. And, and to be fair to Expedia, it's not like they just forgot to send the itineraries. They were always sending them out. It's just that many of them were ending up in spam folders or uh, customers were deleting them, thinking they were advertisements, that kind of thing. And so what do you do in a situation like this? Well, the technical fixes are very simple. You know, you change the way you send emails so you avoid the spam filter and you change the content so it doesn't seem advertising-ish. And very quickly, you know, the number of calls goes from 20 million calls. That's literally the number of calls they received for copies of itineraries. Yeah. 20 Say that million, number again, Dan. 20 million calls in a year. That's like every man, woman, and child in Florida calling Expedia in 12 months. The number of calls goes to zero, basically. And, and so the reason I bring this up is not because I think it's an interesting uh, problem-solving story. It was an easy problem to fix. But the, the thing that's important is how did this problem scale <laughs> right. to this level before anybody noticed? I mean, this basically flew under the radar. And I think the answer is fascinating. And that is Expedia, like basically every other large organization on earth, has created silos. And you've got a marketing team at Expedia whose job it is to get visitors to the site and they might be judged on the number of visitors they attract. And then there's a product team that creates the website and makes it fluid and intuitive and funnels people toward a reservation. And they might be judged on the number of people who book a transaction. And then the tech team keeps the website humming along smoothly and they might be judged on things like the percentage of server uptime. And then you've got the support, the call center, who are measured on things like how quickly can we get someone off the phone and, and how happy are they with the resolution. And in isolation, every one of those buckets sounds pretty reasonable. You know, we divided and conquered. But when you ask a very simple question, like whose job is it in this ecosystem to keep customers from needing to call, the answer is nobody. It's none of those people's jobs. Mm. And it's been worse than that. None of them even stood to benefit if the number of calls dropped precipitously. None of them would get a raise, none of them would get a better performance review. This is an example of the kind of thing that just bubbles up between the silos we create in organizations. And I find it fascinating, and I think here's the lesson for the rest of us is, we're so used to, in organizations, breaking things up so that we can manage for efficiency, that we've often designed a system to make it more efficient for us to do things that we actually never needed to do. Mm. At Expedia, the call center folks, I mean, they're getting managed on, can we go from three minutes a call to two minutes and 50 seconds a call to two minutes and 40 seconds a call? But the absurdity is there never needed to be any calls, right? If the system had been correctly set up. And I think that's one of the tensions of, of upstream work is that often to get upstream, we've got to reintegrate parts that we broke up intentionally for the sake of efficiency. Mm. Dan, one of the most inspiring stories uh, in your book 
uh, is around the Chicago public school system. And uh, so I consider the achievement gap that are in many of our urban communities to be, you know, one of our top five critical problems uh, to solve. And often what you hear is that, you know, solve poverty before you try this. And you've got a sentence in the book uh, where you say, when students failed, they believed it was because of root causes that were impossible to fix. Poor families, inadequate K through eight education, traumatic emotional experiences, lack of nutrition, and the, and the reasons, the obstacles to giving these kids a good education and their failing are endless. Yet Chicago, Chicago is not a small little town. No. Solved their graduation problems in the most, uh, it was shocking to me to read the story. So share what happened here, because if this could get replicated, um, it, it, with the speed actually that this, that happened in Chicago, man, we could, we could change a lot. This story is maybe my favorite in the whole book because I think it has such a spirit of, of optimism and hope for all of us. And it started in a place where there was very little of either of those. Back in 1998, CPS, Chicago Public Schools, had a graduation rate of 52%. I mean, think about that. It's like a, yeah. a coin flips chance of graduating if you're a teenager in Chicago. And just think for a second, if you were an assistant principal or a teacher within CPS and you just found that appalling, what in the world would you do? I mean, you're- You'd you're feel one, helpless, right? Feel completely helpless. I mean, this is a district of 300,000 students, right? Just that number alone would make CPS one of the top 50 cities in the United States. What are you going to do? And so I want to walk through what they did do. And, and I want to kind of point conceptually at, at what they were doing that we might learn from, from our own purposes. The first thing was they figured out that they could get early warning of the problem. You know, when the, when the student shows up to the counselor's office to drop out of school, it's too late, right? It, there's nothing you can do at that point. But some academics in Chicago, including Elaine Allensworth, they figured out that you could detect in the ninth grade with 80% accuracy, which students were going to graduate and which were going to drop out. And they used a very simple metric to make this prediction. It was called freshman on track. And the components of this metric, by the way, were two things. Number one, did the student complete five full year course credits, you know, take a normal full course load. And number two, did they avoid failing more than one core course? It was okay if you failed one semester of math or English or history, but if you failed two, that was a real warning flag. And notice what's missing from that, right? There is no part of the prediction that's, that's allocated to family income or race or the neighborhood you're from, or even, I mean, most amazingly of all, there's no part of that's about how you did as a seventh grader or an eighth grader. There was something special about the ninth grade that they figured out if we can just get people in the right groove in the ninth grade, they're predisposed to succeed. And so now that's our smoke detector. Now we've got a chance to get a warning in advance and not just in advance, but four years in advance. It buys us a lot of opportunity to change the fate of these young people. And so this brings me to maybe my favorite quote in the book from a health expert named Paul Batalden. He said, every system is perfectly designed to get the results it gets. Mm. 
every system is perfectly designed to get the results it gets. And when you're looking at a district that year after year fails half of its students, you got to realize something. That's not a failure driven by a lack of effort. You know, it's not that people right. aren't showing up to their jobs with enough energy. It means that there are fundamental things about what you're doing as a district that are engineered to fail students. And I'll give you an example of what they figured out when they started looking at the district this way. This was the era of, of zero tolerance on discipline issues. Uh, one, uh, one woman told me this was the era when a couple of kids would shove each other in the hallways and they'd both be slapped with a two week suspension. And it seemed like the right thing to do to have zero tolerance. But what we know now is if you take a kid who's on the borderline and you kick them out of school for two weeks, they're done. They yeah. come back, they don't catch up. They're they fill classes. Behind. Yeah, exactly. They fill classes and then that puts them off track according to that metric and then they don't graduate. And none of the people who were part of that, the assistant principal who doled out those two week suspensions, he or she didn't have any clue that they might be dooming a child not to graduate from high school, but, but in fact, that is what they were doing. So they, they overhaul their discipline policies. And then the fundamental thing that they did, we just talked about the Rockford story a minute ago. Notice the similarities here. Right. First, they, they surrounded the problem in the schools, meaning they got together all the freshman faculty, biology teachers, English teachers, math teachers, the counselor, and they would meet once or twice a month as what they called freshman success teams. And what they would do in these meetings, remember the Rockford story, they would go student by student, name by name, based on who seemed to be at most risk of being off track. And, and so it might be things like, well, okay, um, Rodney, how did, how did he do this week on the, on the math exam? Well, he actually pulled it up. He's at a, he's at a C plus now. So, so we're doing better there. Okay. What about Keisha? Well, we figured out Keisha, she's coming late almost every day to first period. And the reason is she's got to take her little sister to elementary school every day. And so we don't think that's going to change. All right. Well, let's get her out of English first period and into PE first period. So at least if she fails, it won't be a core course. And, and again, that was the texture of how progress was made. You know, one meeting, one school, one kid at a time. And then if you fast forward to recent years, uh, the graduation rate the last couple of years has been not 52%, but 78, 79%. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're talking about tens of thousands of students whose lives have been permanently changed for the better because of this work. And, and that to me is, is the quintessential upstream victory. It was hard. It took a lot of people. It was complex. It was the kind of thing that in the beginning you think to yourself, how in the world would we ever make progress on this? And yet when you succeed, it locks in victories that are so powerful. It makes all the work worthwhile. And, and Dan, reading that story what just made me think about a couple of practical things, right? One is most of us have our head down. We're running the train. That, you know, it feels like there's no room other than to run the train, mm -hmm. right? And so you can imagine that there's the person or the people that pick their heads up and say, look, we've got to solve this problem and they get it going. But what, what did you see in your examples that sustained it? What, what was it that allowed real 
cultural change to happen. Changing cultures is the most difficult thing for any of us to do, whether it's a municipality or a business or a nonprofit. So what, what, what did you see in Rockford or Chicago, where you've got a couple of healthcare systems that made it a sustainable approach to prevention? Yeah, great question. And, and I think the heart of it is, is actually an insight that kind of surprised me when I realized it in my research. And that is, you know, earlier we talked about how downstream work is, is obligated, it's demanded. You know, a tornado goes Yeah, through, the fire's uh, going. Yeah, the, 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 your house is on fire. Of course, the fire department's going to come out and put it out. But when you flip it around to an upstream issue and you say, whose job is it to keep your house from burning down? Mm. That's actually a very complicated question. I mean, the homeowner is probably first in line, but, but they're not alone. It also involves the people who built your house and the materials they used and the suppliers of those materials and the building codes that your city has and the, the actions of your neighbors and on and on and on. And so accountability becomes diffuse. And when there's no clear owner of a problem, guess what? It never gets solved. Mm. And so I think the first principle here is that, that weirdly, even though these upstream issues are so critical, they're often addressed by essentially volunteers. The, the, the work is chosen rather than demanded. And I think that's true even inside organizations. I don't mean literal volunteers like you're not getting paid, but I mean yeah. someone has to, has to uh, voluntarily use their time to deal with these things. And so I think that's the clue that unlocks the question you asked, which is to go upstream in an organization means you've got to use the volunteer energy of the people inside, which in turn means you've got to choose issues that are really important and that people are willing to struggle to combat. You, you don't need an upstream committee for every single problem that ever happens in your business. That, that's not what I'm, what I'm saying in the book. What I'm saying is let's pick those thorny problems that happen again and again. In Chicago, it was the dropout rate. In Rockford, it was the homeless population. In, in your organization, you listening, maybe it's uh, turnover among staff. Maybe mm. it's um, customer dissatisfaction, something that's really important, really meaningful, and is, is something that's interesting and important enough to your employees to sustain their interest over time. Because with that, without that interest, there is no you know, exogenous forcing function that's going to that's gonna make you do this. Yeah. And, and, you know, Dan, the other piece that I think was heartening reading this, so I always worry about things not being replicable because the, the, the success is pinned to a person who's heroic, who's, mm -hmm. you know, um, it, it has a, an incredible source of energy, is inspiring, you know, all these circumstances. And the way... You know what the big one of the big takeaways from the book for me was no turn around the issue just the way you talked about okay which what is the problem that you're solving and the one that feels extremely contemporary is we are obviously and and appropriately hearing a lot about policing reforms mm -hmm. and. It, you know, the term defunding the police is being used to really talk about, okay, what 
are the police tasked with and what is another way of executing, or I shouldn't use that word, of delivering on their responsibility. So share with us this brilliant little example about two different officers in a community. Oh yeah, I'm glad you brought this up. So, so earlier I was talking about how I heard this parable about upstream and the, the, the story of the kids in the river. This was the second thing that happened that, that cemented this idea in my brain is I was talking to the deputy chief of police of a major Canadian city and he had this, this thought experiment that just captured my imagination. He said, imagine you've got two police officers and one of them goes to an intersection in downtown that's notoriously chaotic. Lots of collisions there, people get hurt. And she stations herself in a visible place in the intersection. And, and by making her presence known, she makes drivers more cautious. And, and because of that, she ends up uh, preventing collisions from happening. And then a second officer goes to a different part of downtown where there's a prohibited right turn signal. So you're not supposed to make right turns and she hides around the corner and whenever drivers sneakily try to get away with that right turn, she jumps out, uh, pulls them over and gives them a ticket. And he said, which of these two officers do you think did more to protect and provide for public right. safety? And he said, indisputably, it's the first. I mean, she, she may have saved people's lives, certainly avoided injuries and, and uh, traffic delays and, and the whole bit. But if you ask which officer is going to get promoted, which officer is going to be noticed? Uh, it's the second because she comes back with a stack full of tickets that provide tangible yeah. evidence of her success. And meanwhile, that first officer, how does she prove she did anything? I mean, how do you prove when something does not happen? Yeah. And, and, and you know, you've got some examples in the book. So I was, I, you know, I'm old enough and was very involved in Y2K and, Everybody saying, oh, that was a hoax. We all spent, you know, gazillion, bedillions of dollars. And it's still not clear whether all that prevention actually prevented the problem or it wasn't going to happen. And the chapter that you've got in the book, you know, because we're obviously not going to be able to get to everything, is like, which problem do you pick to prevent? Because you know, it's a little chicken little. The sky's falling. Is it really falling? When's it going to fall? What's going to happen? So how you end up picking the problem that you're going to put the serious energy into preventing, and if you're successful, you're probably going to be unknown, right? We're not even going to know what got prevented. Exactly right. Uh, and I think Y2K is a perfect example of this. This is, this is sometimes called uh, the paradox of prevention, which says that the better a job you do at preventing something, the less evidence there is that it ever needed preventing. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> which is just a horrible curse for people right. who mean well and do great work, right? Uh, I, I talked to this woman, Julie Pavlin, who's a public health expert, and she says, in public health, when you do a great job, your budget gets cut because they say, well, there's nothing happening here. Why are we spending all this money on this? And, and that was the story of Y2K. The guy who was the Y2K czar in the federal government, John Koskinen, just a great character. I really enjoyed talking to him. And he said, from the moment he accepted this role from Bill Clinton, he said, I knew it was a no-win job because if I <laughs> failed and the banking system collapsed and traffic lights didn't work and you know people were 
uh, you know, looting grocery stores to, to, to feed their families. I, I was going to be the guy they'd blame. And if, you know, January 1st, 2000 came and went with, uh, with, with nary a whimper, then they were going to say, well, that sure was a lot of bunk. We, we got sold a bill of goods on Y2K. It was never anything. And, and the latter is basically what happened because thousands and thousands and thousands of people invested billions of dollars and millions of man hours making it so. And so here you've got a, a classic example where we saw a bad thing coming. And this was interesting because it was a, a unique, a one-off. Yeah. You know, there will never, there has never been another Y2K bug and there will never be another Y2K bug. And, and in a situation like that, there's no, there's no control group, you know, you, you got to just place your bets. And fortunately, people placed bets that this was a big deal. It needed a lot of work. John Cuskin and his crew led the work, but of course, the vast majority of it was done outside that in individual organizations around the world. And, and it basically came and went without disruption. And to me, that's a, that's a great upstream story, you know, and, and a hopeful story because um, Y2K was another one of these issues that sounded really weird and ambiguous and vaguely comic. You know, the idea that we had a two digit date was going to be the, you know, the end of civilization. I mean, it, it just sounded ridiculous, but, but over time, you know, with, with enough advocacy and with enough experts, you know, testifying to the fact that this was a real thing, we got serious about it. And so that gives me hope on issues like climate change that, that have a similar complexion. Yeah, and we, we won't have time to go into it, but the opposite happened with Katrina. With Katrina. They actually had modeled Katrina, uh, and it, it eerily, their, their model looked like Katrina, and yet they didn't do it fast enough. They didn't have the resources or the sustained interest. And, and there was Katrina, which brings me to the last topic that we'll have time for. So as you made reference to, we're recording this in um, July of 2020. We're in the middle of a pandemic and uh, that some would say was inevitable and others would say was preventable. So what what could have happened? How predictable and preventable was this pandemic? You know, I, I am not an expert on pandemics, so I feel a little out of, out of my pay bracket Speculate, but, but But certainly a lot of the themes in the book are relevant here. I, 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 when I was writing this, I never knew it was going to be a current events book, but, but boy, <laughs> right. did we need some upstream work on this. And, and I think that the things to observe are basically as follows. Number one, um, you know, there are certain things that we can't prevent outright. You can't prevent a hurricane, um, but you can manage your response in ways that are really important. And I think a pandemic is not quite a hurricane. Like the, there actually was a scenario here where, where we could have prevented this altogether. I mean, there, there are researchers who... Who, who hang out in bat caves in China and take blood samples from bats to get a sense of what's in the population. And, and there are real ways that we could try to uh, interrupt the, the transfer of viruses from animal species to people, which of course is, is the source of these uh, pandemics. So, I mean, I don't know that we had a great chance, but there's no question there was a chance to prevent the thing in its entirety. That's, that's part one. 
part two, I think it's important to realize how much better off we are today than we would have been a hundred years ago with something like this. I mean, just the profound steps that have been taken in public health and the surveillance systems that allow us to track the progression of disease all over the world and in practically real time. I mean, it's just, it's mind blowing. The, the supply chains that can respond within weeks to the needs of society and, you know, the ability to fast track vaccines. I mean, all this stuff are, are the fruits of decades worth of work. And, and it's been horrible. I mean, hundreds of thousands of people will die from this pandemic, but it could have been a lot worse. It could have been millions of people. And so I think that's part two of the story that we don't talk a lot about because there's so much hardship that's come from this. Part three is the part I think that we all know in our bones, whether or not we're public health experts in that, is we blew the response. Mm-hmm. You know, we had, we had at least two months of warning that this was coming. And miracles can happen in two months when people are proper, properly mobilized and, and when you have the resources of the federal government to put behind something, miracles can happen. And instead, virtually nothing happened. Nothing. And as a result, we were caught, caught flat-footed. And as a result, there are tens of thousands of people just in the U.S. that are dead who did not need to die. And I mm. think that is, that's appalling. And I don't, yeah. I, I don't that's know. That's a calamity. I, yeah. Uh, so Dan, we are, our our time uh, has run out, and I want to make sure our listeners um, appreciate what you always do in your books, um, and Upstream does it again, and that is, it manages to be practical. Um, you know, we didn't get to the chapters. Uh, that talk about really what's the first step? How do you decide to do this? How do you sustain it? And in the back of the book, you've got, you know, podcasts and websites and very, very practical, implementable solutions to turn around your thinking to be upstream. But at the same time, it's always inspiring to think about uh, what's possible. I mean, I sometimes say to myself, Dan, when I think about your books, like I should go back and read each one of the books each year because I get one thing that I take away that I can actually implement, but I forget the other four things I could have <laughs> implemented. Uh, but I, I, in thanking you, I'd like to close with what is one of my most favorite quotes that Um, I think guides a lot of us that do nonprofit work and it's from Frederick Douglass. Mm. And the quote is, it's easier to build strong children than to repair broken men. Mm. And uh, your stories in the book and the uh, potential uh, that thinking upstream can accomplish exactly what I think Frederick Douglass dreamt about whether it's healthcare or schools or kids or or any of of a number of other issues so thank you for keep writing these books dan thank you so much and what a great quote there at the end that is it that's exactly the spirit of the book that that what we need fundamentally is a is a change in our our model of heroism from from celebrating people who rush in to save the day to beginning to celebrate and appreciate the people who keep the day from needing to be saved. So yeah. I, I appreciate the chance to, uh, to talk about the book with you. 
Great. Thanks so much for your time, Dan. Be well. Thank you. You too. You've been listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. The show is produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, Johnny Diamond, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Justin Alvarez. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Roxanne Cody, and thank you so much for listening.